0: Growing in God's Word and learning what it means to take up our cross and follow Jesus. This is Crosswalk with Pastor Clay Stevens from Cross Culture Church in Raleigh.
1: When your life is driven by materialism, you'll always be driven to want more. No matter what you have, it won't be enough. No matter what car you have, there's another one out there that's a little better, right? When your whole world is wrapped up in your stuff, you'll always want more stuff to unwrap
0: righteousness That's a word you hear from time to time in church. But what does it mean to be righteous? Most of us would understand it to mean that we live our life in a way that God would want us to, in a way that honors God. That's a good definition. But how do we live righteously in a world that is unrighteous?
1: In the garden, we grow in our understanding that it takes conviction and courage to live righteously in a world of unrighteousness.
0: Hello and welcome to Crosswalk. Today in our summer series, Growing in the Garden, we're turning to a passage of scripture that reveals a story of greed and covetousness, deception, and even murder. The story is found in 1 Kings chapter 21 and the story of Naboth's vineyard. The story of a greedy king,
1: a wicked queen, and a guy that just wanted to be left alone and do what God wanted him to
0: do. From this story, Pastor Clay is going to show us some of the harsh realities of living righteously in a world of unrighteousness and hopefully help us grow in our understanding of what it takes to live for God in our world today. Now, here's Pastor Clay. Some of you
1: probably uh, know, I believe the gentleman's name is uh, Richard uh, Brunson. He is from North Carolina. And he has essentially been a missionary in Turkey for more than 20 years. But after the failed by the military in 2016, I believe it was, while the, uh, the Turkish police and everybody were rounding up uh, suspected people, uh, Richard Brunson, this pastor, this missionary in Turkey, was arrested and charged with uh, leading a terrorist organization. I think it's official charge. Leading a terrorist organization organization. He uh, spent about a year and a half in prison before international pressure finally, uh, just very, very recently, got him released into house arrest, but he's still facing trial, and if convicted, uh, will spend the rest of his life in a Turkish prison. On all sides, universally agree, Although the Turkish government would never say this, but most everybody agrees that the only thing Richard Brunson is guilty of is loving Jesus and loving the Turkish uh, people. Uh, he has been caught up uh, and is basically being used as a political pawn by the Turkish government because they're trying to get the American government to, uh, what's that word called? Send send a guy back. That's probably not the word, but... It, it, yeah, extradite. See, y'all are so much smarter than me. Uh, that they're trying to get the American government to extradite a guy that the Turkish president is pretty sure is the one that kind of spearheaded this whole coup. He got out of the country when it, apparently when it he saw that it was failing. He got out of the country and the the Turkish president wants that guy back and so he's using Richard Brunson as a bargaining chip to try and get this. accused of something that you didn't do, you stolen from you that that, that was that was genuinely yours? Have you ever had a uh, a situation where where you suffered for doing the right thing? You ever had a situation where you suffered for doing the right thing? I'm going to talk about that a little bit today. We're in our summer series, Growing in the Garden. And we're just looking at different gardens in Scripture and just some principles that we can learn. It's not necessarily one... Uh, garden building upon another, these are principles that come from each particular area where we are. And today, we're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 21. Where are we going to be? 1 Kings Kings 21. You can open your Bibles there, whatever kind of version that you have, whatever translation you have. 1 Kings chapter 21, we're going to spend some time uh, looking at the story of a greedy king, a wicked queen, and a guy that just wanted to be left alone and do what God wanted him to do. 1 Kings chapter 21, we're going to bring out just again some, some basic uh, principles that we can learn. And I've said this that in each one of these with this kind of overarching heading to say that in the garden we grow in our understanding. Here's what we're going to start with today. In the garden we grow in our understanding that it takes conviction and courage to live righteously in a world of unrighteousness. Would have been a good place to amen, but I'm, I'm, just, I'm just throwing that out there. In the garden, we grow in our understanding that it takes conviction and courage to live in a world of unrighteousness, to live righteously. Let me start out 1 Kings chapter 21. I'll read verses 1 through 3, uh, fairly short, so you, you may, you probably some of you have your desks out and all that kind of stuff, so if you can, just squeeze by. I want you to stand this morning, and, the, and let me read these first three verses, and then I'll read the rest of it as we, uh, as we go. First Kings chapter 21. If you're able to stand, please do so. Now, it came about... After these things, that Naboth, the Jezreelite, had a vineyard, which was in Jezreel, beside the palace of Ahab, king of Samaria. Ahab spoke to Naboth, saying, Give me your vineyard, that I may have it, for a vegetable garden, because it is close beside my house, and I will give you a better vineyard than it in its place. If you like, I will give you the price of it in money." But Naboth said to Ahab, The Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. God, uh, today, would you just help us to, to focus on you again? I know it's it's hot in here. The air conditioning's not working and, and all that. But help us to just not focus on ourselves and just focus in on this, your word. God, I don't know of a more relevant, uh, really, uh, subject than the idea of living righteously in a world of unrighteousness because the world, the culture around us, for the most part, I believe, has lost its way. It's it's choosing unrighteousness instead of righteousness. To understand how we, if we're followers of Jesus, if we're here and and we would say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus Christ, then how should we respond? How should we live in a world of unrighteousness? Teach us from the example of, Naboth, and, and this story in First Kings 21. In Jesus' name, amen, amen, thank you, and be seated. Ahab was the, the king of what is referred to as the northern kingdom. Now, some of you are aware of this, some of you may not be, but there was a period of time when the nation of Israel, because of a civil war, was divided. Uh, you, you ended up with two kingdoms uh, for a few hundred years there. You had the the southern kingdom comprised of two of the tribes of Israel, Judah and Benjamin. And it was sometimes just referred to as as the nation of Judah because Judah was the bigger tribe between the two of those. But it was the southern kingdom. And then you had the northern kingdom, which was comprised of the remaining ten tribes of Israel. And it was sometimes still referred to simply as Israel probably because it had the most tribes that stayed with it or, or whatever, but it sometimes was referred to as as just Israel after the Civil War. Eventually they came back together, but during this period of time, there are two kingdoms. How many kingdoms are there? Ahab has a summer palace in Jezreel. The palace was located on the eastern side of the city, uh, upon or against the, the the city wall or the city uh, fortresses and just beyond that wall was a at, at the bottom of it was a moat a, most likely a, a dry moat and beyond that moat looking out into the Jordan uh, toward the Jordan River out into the what's called the Valley of Jezreel was a plot of land that belonged to Naboth to his family and it was his garden it was his vineyard Ahab decides that he that he wants this plot of land that belongs to, uh, to Naboth. Now, the text reads as if, doesn't it? We read it just a moment ago, but it reads as if Naboth, or Ahab wants the land for convenience sake, right? Well, it's close by my palace. Uh, it'll be easy to, to garden there, so, so why, don't you, why don't you give me uh, your land? Sell me your land, trade me your land, do, do something like that. And listen, I, I can't prove this, I can't, I can't look in Scripture and see this, but, but I have my serious doubts that Ahab wanted this land for convenience sake, okay? He's the king, right? He's the king. He, he's not going to get out and, and get dirty uh, plowing fields. He's not going to get sweaty pulling weeds and, and, and getting the produce. He's got servants to do that kind of stuff. Uh, it is my strong suspicion that Ahab, plot of land... Not for convenience sake, but for one reason and for one reason only. And that was because in Ahab's palace that he could look out a window and he could see something that didn't belong to him. He could see something that belonged to somebody else. And I believe it was gnawing at Ahab that there was something that he wanted that somebody else had. You see, this see, this is one of those universal principles, ladies and gentlemen. You can, just, you can just put this down. This is one of those universal principles of life. As a matter of fact, uh, Tyler's going to bring it up on the screen. But when your life is driven by materialism, you'll always be driven to want more. Listen, I know this is not the point of this message today, but that doesn't mean we can't learn something extra along the way. And I'm just telling you, you can put it down in stone when your life is driven by materialism. You will always be driven to want more. No matter what you have, it won't be enough. No matter what car you have, there's another one out there that's a little better. No matter what, right? And we've talked about this lots of times before, and the balance, and God's not against us, having nice, all that kind of stuff. But I'm saying when your life is centered in and driven by this idea of possessions and materialism enough, and I believe that was the case with ahab and, and just because I like to do it to put it another way, when your whole world is wrapped up in your stuff you 'll always want more stuff to unwrap you will you you 'll just when your whole world is wrapped up in stuff you 'll always want more stuff to unwrap and this is a universal principle and, and if I could teach children and teenagers anything about just life in general, that'd be one of the things I try to teach them right now. Listen, don't get on that wheel. Don't don't get caught up in that idea that, oh, I gotta have this or I gotta have that. We all can, right? We just, because we're Americans. So Ahab comes to Naboth and basically makes him an offer that Ahab thinks he can't refuse. He He says to Naboth, listen, basically, I'll, I'll either give you a better and or bigger piece of land for yours, or I'll just write you a blank check. Name your price that a person would say no to an offer like that. It, it can't even, you can't even imagine. Why would anybody say no to an offer like that? I just offered this guy a blank check. Thou shalt not covet is the last one of the Ten Commandments given in, in the book of Exodus. It's the last one given, but I'm in full agreement with uh, the Bible commentator Warren Wiersbe when he says that it just may be the the hardest one to actually keep, because while the other nine focus on physical actions, don't don't make idols, don't murder, don't don't lie, covetousness really gets to the heart. It really gets to the to the the secret place in a person's heart and and what they desire and what they want and what they're willing to to give for that and the value that they place on it. You understand what I'm saying? And that's where Ahab was. And listen to me. Here's what we need to understand. Naboth's response, uh, Ahab to sweeten the deal. It's not just the sentimental feelings of a of a of a man that just doesn't want to let go of his land or the land that his his, his father's it had it's it's not that. His response is quite literal when he says, "The Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. The Lord forbid me that I should give you the inheritance of my fathers. It was, you see, it was a biblical command. This may be strange for us to understand in our culture uh, today, but uh, according to uh, Jewish law, it was illegal to sell the land. That had been dispersed to you and to your family when God divided up the promised land among the tribes of Israel when they when they came into the land. Now the reason for that was one to make sure that, that there was always equity, right? That that not one person could could take over or find somebody else who had a bad crop and they buy them out this year or whatever. It was to keep balance and to keep equity between all the tribes, so there's not jealousy, so there's not warring over that kind of stuff, and it was to make sure that everybody had so. That, that, that everybody had a way to produce something to eat. You understand? It's an agrarian society. Almost everything is done agriculturally or connected to the agricultural uh, industry. And so God said you, 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 can't, you can't sell the, the land. Now, you could lease the land to somebody if there was some reason why you couldn't work it or something like that. But even that, did you know this in Jewish law? Even in that, there was this thing called year of, of jubilee. Every 50th year, all the leases were canceled no matter where you ever you were in the every every 50th year on the year of jubilee all the leases were canceled and all the land reverted back to the original tribes and to the original families Ahab understood that Ahab understood the the what the God's commandments were about the land but he didn't care you see he wanted what he wanted when he wanted it this isn't just any jack leg to live righteously in a world of unrighteousness Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a pastor and theologian in Germany in World War II. Bonhoeffer saw the, the abuses and the atrocities being uh, perpetrated on the Jewish people. He was a Christian pastor. He saw these atrocities and he knew it was wrong and he knew he had to speak up about it, which for him would be to write about it, to preach about it. He knew he needed to do that and he knew that it would cost him his life was arrested, he was thrown in prison, spent several years in prison, and when it was, became obvious that the Allies were going to win the war and Germany was going to lose shortly before the fall of, of, uh, of Germany, Hitler ordered that Bonhoeffer be executed, he was hanged. It's not easy, man, it's not easy to live righteously in, in, in a world or in a culture that is... I think we have some passages of Scripture that, that deal with that, um, Tyler, don't we have... In Job 27, 6, I hold fast my righteousness, and I will not let it go. My heart does not reproach any of my days. I, I'm not going to let go of this. That's important. I'll explain it in a minute. Psalm 4, 5, offer the sacrifices of righteousness. It's, it's to live up, to, to offer the sacrifice of righteousness. God, I'm going to live for you. I'm going to live, no matter what this standard, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to live for you. It takes both conviction and courage. Now, listen to me. It's important that you get the order of this correct. Okay? It's important that you get the order of it correct. And, and what has to be first is conviction. Because, here's the way I'd put it, and I think you've got a blank to fill this in, my conviction fuels my courage. Be courageous. If I'm just supposed to to do a particular thing or, or act a certain way, but I have no conviction about it, you understand what I'm saying? If, if, if I don't really have a conviction about it, then I'm probably not going to, Perfect picture of this. I think it was just last week or maybe week week before last when there was apparently an attempted uh, assassination of the uh, Venezuelan president. Did y'all see this? It happened, dur- happened during a military parade. Military parade, here comes all the, all the soldiers and they're strong and they're brave and they're courageous and, and all that stuff. Uh, uh, and, and apparently in this attempted assassination attempt, uh, somebody flew a drone in, I think had some explosives or something on it. What, what's, what, what's what happens. You understand what I'm saying? If there's not a conviction that this guy is worth saving, I'm not taking a bullet for this guy. I, I, I'm out of here. I'm not going to get blown up with this guy. If there's no conviction, then your courage will fail. I'm just telling you that. It, it's Because it's, it's based on you and what you think. If there's no conviction, it takes conviction. Conviction fuels your courage. But then conversely, or as, as a result of that, I'd say this. My, my courage then Fulfills my conviction. In other words, if if I'm really convicted about something, uh, it, it it gives me the staying power to stay in and do this and and to do it. And and if I do that, my courage, if I'm courageous in the face of whatever I might face, right? In the face of Nazis, in the face of ridicule or laughter or whatever, in the face of whatever. If I if I can, if it's my conviction that's right, then I'll stay in there, and my courage then allows me to fulfill that conviction that I had. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'll give you an example of that. We know, historically, that Jesus' original followers, His original disciples, were dramatically, drastically, radically different post-resurrection, after the resurrection, than they were before the resurrection. I mean, you can read it in the Gospels, but we know historically that that it's true. Before the resurrection, Jesus' followers were timid. They were shy. They were afraid. They were running in fear of of the religious leaders and the Roman government, especially once Jesus was arrested. They were hiding out in a dark room in hopes that nobody would find them there. But after the reality of that Sunday morning on the third day, and they realized that Jesus really was alive, when they became so strongly convicted that this thing, this, this, this whole stuff Jesus has been telling us is actually true, when that became their deepest conviction, they are radically different people after that. They're, they're bold, they're brazen, they're broad daylight just telling everybody about Jesus. They're, 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 just, they're just sharing the gospel message everywhere they go. What changed? Their conviction changed that this really was true because of the resurrection. And because of that, it gave them the courage then to fulfill the conviction of fulfilling the mission that God had given them to do. It takes both conviction and courage. I want to ask you a question, then we'll move on. What do you believe? What do you really believe? In the deep recesses of your heart and your mind, what do you really believe about this whole stuff? Besides the fact that, I believe it's hot in here. Besides that, what do you believe about God? Do you really believe there is a God? Do you really believe that this God is eternal and that he created this whole thing? Do you really believe that he sent his son to die on the cross? Do you really believe that there is an eternity to come and and that all of this matters and how we live our lives and the choices that we make and the decisions uh, for our future, all those kind of things? Do you believe, do you believe, do you really believe this? Because if you do, that, that should be a conviction of your heart and your life. And I say to you, let that conviction then fuel your courage. To live for Christ, to, to live, and to live for Christ simply means do life the way He says. And, and if you have any questions about that, Genesis to Revelation on how to do life, if you really believe this stuff, then, then that, that, let that be your conviction. Let that conviction fuel your courage to, to, to stand up at school, to, to stand up in the workplace. I'm not saying you gotta break a Bible out and say, all right, all y'all come around here, cut off your machines, I'm gonna get y'all saved. I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm just saying, to live righteously in a world of unrighteousness. In the garden we grow in our understanding that it will usually cost you to live righteously in a world of unrighteousness. So Ahab came into his house. Naboth just said, God forbid. Literally meant, no, God, God won't let me sell you this land. But God still won't let me sell it. So Ahab came into the house sullen and vexed. Because of the word which Naboth the Jezreelite had spoken to him. For he said, I will not give you the inheritance of my fathers. And he, meaning Ahab, lay down on his bed and turned away his face and ate no food. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> wah, wah, wah. Verse 5 But Jezebel, his wife, came to him. And said to him, how is it that your spirit is so sullen that you're not eating food? Ahab, what the world? So he said to her, because I spoke to Naboth, the Jezreelite, and said to him, give me your vineyard for money or else if it please you, I'll I'll give you a vineyard in its place. But he said, I'll not give you my vineyard. Jezebel, his wife, said to him, do you now reign over Israel? Arise, eat bread, and let your heart be joyful. I will give you the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite. So she wrote letters in Ahab's name and sealed them with his seal and sent letters to the elders and to the nobles who were living with Naboth in his city. Now she wrote in the letters saying, Proclaim a fast and seat Naboth at the head of the people. And seat two worthless men before him and let them testify against him saying, you cursed God and the king. Then? So the men of the city, the elders and the nobles who lived in this city, did as Jezebel had sent word to them, just as it was written in the letters which she had sent them. They proclaimed a fast and seated Naboth at the head of the people. And then the two worthless men came in, sat down before him, and the worthless men testified against him, even against Naboth, before the people, saying, Naboth cursed God and the king. So they took him outside. The city and stoned him to death. And then they sent word to Jezebel saying, Naboth has been stoned and is dead. When Jezebel heard that Naboth had been stoned and was dead, Jezebel said to Ahab, Arise, take possession of the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite, which he refused to give you for money, for Naboth Naboth is not alive. Er, Ahab goes inside and basically pouts. There's a temper tantrum in some respects because he didn't get his way. See, I'm telling you, it wasn't, just, it wasn't about convenience. It was about covetousness. And somebody said no to the king and said he couldn't have something. And so he goes inside and he pouts. And along comes Jezebel. Now listen to me, because this is another one of those universal principles of life. If I was you, I'd, I'd write this down because this is, this is the truth, ladies and gentlemen. If you want to act unrighteously, there will always be somebody there to help you. That is a universal principle of life. If you want to act unrighteously, there will always be someone available to help. If you, decide, if you say, you know, I'm going to stand in this situation in my school where they're doing this, or in this situation, I'm going to stand, I'm going to, I'm going to live for God. Many times you'll do that alone, right? But if you, if you say, well, I, you know, I'll just, maybe, I'll, I, I'm, I'm just telling you this is a universal principle of life. Somebody will be there to help you into sin. Now, Jezebel was not an Israelite. She was a princess of Phoenicia. She was a Phoenician princess. I'm sure Ahab married for some political purposes. She probably did not know the Jewish law concerning the, the sale of land, not selling of land, and all that sort of thing. She, she probably didn't know about it, but she certainly didn't care about it, because Jezebel didn't believe in the God of Israel. She had her own gods that she imported from Phoenicia, and Ahab was was more than willing to let her infect all of Israel with false gods and idols and and all this kind of stuff to to bring into Israel and, and have, its, have its effect all on all the people. Jezebel was was from a um, an authoritarian. A dictatorship. She was used to a dictatorial system of rule. Where you don't, if you're the guy in charge, if you're the guy that, that's, that's got the power, you don't ask. You don't offer to buy. You take. You're the king. That's why she says, aren't you the king of Israel? And she does, right? The The text says, I love the text, says two worthless men. Two worthless men. Literally sons of corruption is how it would translate. Literally sons of corruption. But it's clear in the text that these two guys aren't the only two worthless men in this story, are they? The elders, the the leaders of, of Jezreel, they knew. They knew what was going on. They knew what was going down. They knew this was a trap. They knew this was set up. They knew everything about this. But they lacked neither the conviction nor the courage that Naboth had to stand up to it if they even wanted to. And so they go right along with it. These two worthless men say, uh, 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 Naboth cursed God and the king. Now according to Levitical law, law, you had to have at least two witnesses to bring a charge against somebody. So they, they fulfilled that part of the law. But the character of the witnesses and the person being accused are supposed to count for something. And in this case they didn't. And Naboth was taken out and stoned to death. Now it is at this point, if we're honest, struggle with this Americanized, pasteurized, homogenized concept of God and our relationship with Him. We have come to believe, we meaning the Christian churches, have, have come to believe that that if God loves me, and He certainly does, then then it's it's going to work out fine for me. It's it's going to be good. It's gonna I'm going to get the job. I'm not going to get the cancer. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna have I'm going to have the perfect marriage. I'm going to have all this stuff. It's going to work out well for me because because I'm with God. Joel Osteen told me that God wants my best life now. I'm pretty sure being stoned to death doesn't fit anywhere into my best life ever. Come on, this is not come on. You understand the influences in our culture? This is not how this story is supposed to end. It's not supposed to end with Naboth is dead. The good guy can't die. That wrecks the movie. This is not... The the story is supposed to end something like uh, and an angel of the Lord appeared and turned the stones into marshmallows so that that Naboth was uninjured. Plus, he was able to make s'mores for everybody around the campfire that night. (laughs) Thus, the people knew that Naboth had not... Uh, cursed God or the king. The story should end something like that, but that's not how it ends. It ends with Naboth dying in a way that must have been horribly painful, at least until he was unconscious to be stoned to death. See, this... this, It will usually cost you to live righteously in a world of unrighteousness. And I know that's not popular. I, I know I'm probably not going to get many recruits uh, w- when I say this kind of thing. But folks, this, this, is, the, this is the truth of Scripture. It will usually, as a matter of fact, I would say most times it will cost you to live righteously in a world of unrighteousness. It just, it just does. That's the world in which we live in. Not, listen to me. Not because God doesn't care about your temporary uh, material discomfort or harm or pain or whatever. Not because he doesn't care about that, but because he cares about the eternal gain more. More. Here's, it, must be, uh, it must be World War II uh, day or something, but uh, some of you know the, the I've used the book Jesus Freaks before. It's a collection of stories of, of people down through history, some of it in modern history, in the 20th century at least. Uh, at least goes up to the 20th century, of people that have suffered for their faith in Jesus Christ. It's kind of like Fox's Book of Martyrs, which is an old classic, if you're familiar with that. This is kind of a more modern <clears throat> version of it. It's a great read, uh, very convicting. But uh, there's this one of the stories in there is the story of a guy named Richard Wormbrand. <clears throat> uh, let me just tell you, uh, this was after the, the communists took over in Romania, a- after World War II ends and... Russia's expanding their power and, and of course, they were left with Romania and and the communists take over in Romania. Uh, It says it was a year after the communists had seized power in Romania. The government had invited all religious leaders to attend a congress at the parliament building. Over 4,000 attended. Right? So so they're attending, what do they they call it? To attend a congress at the parliament building. You know what this is, right? If you understand how all this works. We're going to find out. We're going to find out who's for us and who's not. That's the purpose of this. Over 4,000 attendants. they first thing they did was choose Joseph Stalin as the honorary president of the Congress. uh, And then the speeches began. It was absurd and horrible. Communism was uh, dedicated to the destruction of religion as had already been shown in Russia. Yet bishops and pastors arose and declared that communism and Christianity were fundamentally the same and could coexist. These men of God were filling the air With flattery and lies. It was as if they spat in Jesus Christ's face. Could stand it no longer. She whispered to her husband. You wives are good at whispering to your husbands. She whispered to her husband. Richard, stand up and wash away this shame from the face of Christ. Richard knew what would happen. Immediately, a great silence fell on the hall. Delegates, it is our duty not to praise earthly powers that come and go, but to glorify God, the Creator and Christ, the Savior who died for us on the cross. A communist official jumped to his feet. This would not do. The whole country was hearing the message of Christ proclaimed from the rostrum of the communist parliament. Your right to speak is withdrawn, he shouted. Wormbrand ignored him and went on. The atmosphere began to change. The audience began to applaud. He, 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 was, he was saying what they all had wanted to say, but were afraid to. The official bellowed, cut that microphone. And the crowd shouted him down. The pastor, the pastor, the pastor. I might get fired up if y'all did that for me occasionally. <laughs> the shouting and clapping went on long after the microphone wires were severed and Wormbrand had stepped down. And the Congress was ended for the day. After this, Richard Wurmbrand was a marked man. On Sunday, February 29th, 1948, Pastor Wormbrand was on his way to church when he was kidnapped by a small group of secret police. He was led to a prison 30 feet beneath the earth where he was kept in solitary confinement. He, he wrote this, he said, For years I was kept alone in a cell. Not weeks, not months. I was kept alone in a cell. Never did I see, sun. imagine this. Sun, moon, stars, flowers. Never did I see a man, another human being, except the interrogators who beat and tortured me. It will usually cost you to live righteously in a world of unrighteousness. That's what I'm saying to you today. And we just we, we just have to understand that. And it's not a surprise. You've seen this before in John uh, chapter 15. Jesus says this, Remember the world that I... S- that, that the word that I said to you, a slave, is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours also. If they, you see the, the difference there? Uh, and the Apostle Paul uh, writes this in Second Timothy chapter 3. Indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be, say it, persecuted. You'll, you'll suffer if you live for Christ Jesus. If you say, I, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to stand up and speak up in a culture that predominantly wants me to sit down and shut up about my God. I'm not going to be arrogant. I'm not going to be, you know, rude. I'm not, I'm, but I'm going to live Jesus Christ. I'm going to live by his standards. I'm going to live by his words. I'm going I'm to treat people the way they ought to be treated. I'm going to love people the way they ought to be, be loved. I'm going to take the moral standards that he tells me to take on, on morality and sexuality and, and everything else that you can think of. I, I'm going to live for him. I applaud you if you decide to do that. That's what we all should do. But I'm telling you, as your pastor, you're probably going to suffer. As a result of it, there's no sugarcoating it. Anybody that tries to sugarcoat it is being intellectually dishonest, and, and worse, they're they're being uh, theologically misleading to to somehow tell you that oh God, God will watch over, God will protect you, and and God does. Listen, He's there because we could say, well, whoa, 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 whoa. What about Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego? Didn't God deliver them from the fiery furnace? Yes, He did. And what what about Daniel? Didn't God deliver him out of the lion's den? Yes, he did. God is on his throne. God is sovereign. God has power. God can act. But I'll say it again. His ultimate aim has to do with the eternal benefit that that comes in your life more than the temporal suffering that you may experience in your life. Not a great salesman for this stuff, are you, Clay? Not Not a lot of people signing up for suffering. That's why we'll move on very quickly and close with the third idea this morning. And it is this. In the garden, we grow in our understanding that it is God who always brings justice to the righteous and the unrighteous. It is God who always, 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 always brings justice. Let me read it to you real quickly here and uh, picking it up in verse 16. Watch what happens now. When Ahab heard that Naboth was dead, Ahab arose to go down to the vineyard of Naboth the Jezreelite to take possession of it. And then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite, saying, Arise, go down to meet Ahab, king of Israel, who is in Samaria. Behold, he is in the vineyard of Naboth, where he has gone down to take possession of it. You shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you murdered and also taken possession? And you shall speak to him, saying, Thus says the Lord, In the place where the dogs licked up the blood of Naboth, the dogs will lick up your blood, even yours. Ahab said to Elijah, have you found me, O my enemy? And he answered, I've found you because you have sold yourself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. Behold, I will bring evil upon you and I will utterly sweep you away and will cut off from Ahab every male, both bond and free, in Israel. And I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and like the house of Baasha the son of Ahijah, because of the provocation with which you have provoked me to anger, and because you have made Israel sin. O Jezebel, also has the Lord spoken, saying, The dogs will eat Jezebel in the district of Jezreel. The one belonging to Ahab who dies in the city, the dogs will eat, and the one who dies in the field, the birds of heaven will eat. Surely there was no one like Ahab who sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord because Jezebel, his wife, incited him. He acted abominably in, the, in following idols according to all that the Amorites had done whom the Lord cast out, cast out before the sons of God. Now if the story ended right there, if the chapter ended right there, we're like, yeah. It came about when Ahab heard these words that he tore his clothes and put on sackcloth and fasted. And he lay in sackcloth and went about despondently. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah the Tishbite saying, Do you see how Ahab has humbled himself before me? Because he has humbled himself before me, I will not bring the evil in his days. But I will bring the evil upon his house in his son's days. I'm sure that... I'm sure that Ahab and Jezebel thought that they had gotten away with their murderous treachery. But listen, here's what I want to say to you. The eye of the one who will judge all mankind. Who will judge all of mankind. So God sends Elijah Elijah down to confront uh, Ahab right in Naboth's vineyard. He's down there. And the Lord says, get down there. In the very place... This is probably the first time that Ahab and Elijah have seen each other in a while. It's probably, it's probably been a couple years, Probably the last time they saw each other was, uh, I think, 1 uh, Kings chapter 17, I think, up on Mount Carmel when uh, Elijah called the fire down and had all the prophets of Baal put to death. Do you remember that if you read that story? That's probably the last time they've seen each other. And clearly, as you read the text, there's, there's no love lost between these guys. They, they don't like each other. Oh, you come down to you come down and found me, my enemy? Oh, I found you. And Elijah proceeds to pronounce judgment on Ahab for what he has done. They don't like each other. That's clear. But listen to me. Here's the thing. The Word of God is the Word of God. And when it has its effect, it has its effect. And apparently, Ahab was genuinely repentant, genuinely remorseful for the actions that had transpired. He was genuinely repentant for the way he had stolen and for the way everything had come out. He expressed it in a a physical way, but... uh, God doesn't look just on, on the outward appearance, he knows the heart. And apparently it was genuine because God says, look at, have you seen how Ahab has responded to me? As a result of that, I'm not going to bring all the judgment down that I, that I had you pronounce. And it is at this point where again, if we're honest, we stop and we can say, I don't like that. I, I, don't, I don't like that. I don't want a guy like that getting off the hook. I don't like the idea of of murderers or rapists uh, being forgiven. I I don't like that. Listen to me, ladies and gentlemen. God's grace, God's mercy, God's forgiveness applies to everybody or doesn't apply to anybody. It has to be available to everybody or it's not available to anybody. Listen, here's the reason why. I would say it this way. Mercy isn't based on the depth of sin. Mercy is based on the depth of God's love. And God's love is inexhaustible. And when a person in genuine repentance comes to him, God receives that repentance for what it is. So we, we may not always like that, that fact. We don't want to think about this person that did these atrocities somehow uh, coming to God and repenting and giving their life to Christ and all that kind of stuff. We hear about these stories. Some prison, prisoner that can committed these acts and we don't like that. But that's the power. That's the power of God's mercy, ladies and gentlemen. That, that even that... For Ahab and Jezebel's actions. If you read this thing. The only thing that God really said. Was that he would not bring the, the judgment of, of wiping out his kingdom. That he, would, that he would save that for Ahab's son. Who was just as wicked or more wicked than Ahab was. If you can believe that. So it wasn't that, A, that his son didn't deserve it. His, his son, it was just following on. That's the only thing God said. He said, I won't bring that judgment. But listen, if you want to read on. 1 Kings 22. On into 2 Kings. Things turned out exactly as God pronounced that they would happen when a random arrow just happens to find a chink in the king's armor and goes between two folds in the king's armor and he dies there on the battlefield to Samaria and the dogs lick up his blood. And Jezebel, you've got to read on a few more chapters, but Jezebel, literally his name was Yehu, or, or, or Jehu, says, chunk her down, boys! Throw her down from, that, from, from the tower. She's looking out the window. She says something smart. He says, who's with me? And, and two guys look at him and says, chunk her down. <laughs> and she falls down and the dogs eat. I, I'm just telling you, God is the one who ultimately brings justice. Justice means that, that equity is applied. There is no act of sin that does not escape God. The, the purpose of the cross was to pay my penalty so that I wouldn't have to suffer for that. But for those that do not, the consequences are severe. There's still a just God who's still operating justly in the world. And the actions of people result in consequences that come about as a result of it. Real quickly, I want to give this to you and I need to close. But I, I, just, want, I just want you to see the depth of this idea, how this goes on and on and on and on in Scripture. Let me give you... A few passages of Scripture. Psalm 9, 8. He will judge the world in righteousness. He will execute judgment for the peoples with... Say it. Equity. He'll do it right. Psalm eleven seven, For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteousness. The upright will behold his face. Psalm 15. O Lord, who may abide in your tent, who may dwell in your holy hill. He who walks with integrity and works righteousness and speaks truth in his heart. See the standard God laying out here? Psalm 96. Before the Lord... For he is coming, for he is coming to judge the earth. He will judge the world in what? In righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. Proverbs eleven four. Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. Proverbs eleven nineteen: he who is steadfast in righteousness will attain to life, and he who pursues evil will bring about his own death. Uh, Ecclesiastes chapter 12, for God will bring every act to judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it is good or whether it is evil. And then in Matthew 5, God blesses those who are persecuted for doing right, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. God blesses you when people mock you and persecute you and lie about you and say all sorts of evil things against you because you are my followers. Be happy about it. Be very glad. For a great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, the ancient prophets were persecuted in the same way. And then finally, one more, Second Corinthians chapter 4. That is why, Apostle Paul says, this is why. Here, here it is. This is why we never give up. We feel like giving up sometimes, don't we? This is why we never give up. Though our bodies are dying, our spirits are being renewed every day. For our present troubles are small and won't last very long, yet they produce for us a glory that vastly outweighs them and will last, how long? So we don't look at the troubles we can see now. Rather, we fix our gaze on things that cannot be seen. For the things we see now will soon be what? Gone. But the things we cannot see will last. It's not easy to live righteously in a world of unrighteousness. But that is the call on your life if you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And and I'm saying to you, here's the payoff, is that, that, that someday God intends to balance the scales and that God intends to reward every single thing that you do in your life for His honor and for His glory, regardless of how much you might have to suffer for it or not suffer for it. We don't always suffer for things that we do for God, but no matter how much it might cost you, no matter what you might have to go without because because you're you're going to do this or take part in this or give to this or, or whatever else, God intends to reward. And the rewards of God are eternal. They're not temporal. They're not something that, that goes out of style or wears out or whatever. They are eternal. They're eternal. They're eternal. Choose righteousness. That's, that's what... That's, That's what Naboth did. He chose righteousness. He he knows he's not saying no to just anybody. He's saying no to the king. He probably knew what would happen. I'm saying to you, choose righteousness.
0: There you have it. As Pastor Clay said in today's message, he didn't sugarcoat it. It's not easy to live for God in a world that's becoming increasingly ungodly we need a conviction based on God's Word to give us the courage to stand up and be counted for God's kingdom. As it did with Naboth, it may cost us to do so, but knowing that God is on His throne and that He will deal justly with everyone encourages us to keep living for God. We invite you to join us on a Sunday morning at Cross Culture Church. We gather each week in a casual and contemporary atmosphere to celebrate the goodness of our God cross culture may be a little different from what you're thinking. Sure, we're a church, but instead of religion, we're about a relationship, a community of believers where Jesus is revealed in the lives of each person, real people who truly care, solid biblical teaching from Pastor Clay Stevens, and the most energetic, fun, and safe kids program around. Find out more at crossculture.church. Cross Culture Church in North Raleigh, taking the cross to our culture and taking our culture to the cross.